All theology has a history. That is, all theological propositions and positions, whether that's creedal, confessional, speculative, or even heretical, come from somewhere, and they lead somewhere else. They look both backwards at what has come before, and they look forward to what is yet to come. For the Christian theological tradition, this history includes, but is not limited to, the texts of the biblical writings themselves, especially when a New Testament author makes use of the Old Testament, for example, or when the scriptures incorporate early creedal statements, again, some of which are there in the New Testament, and the oral written tradition that's referenced in early Christian literature. From these sources, the Old Testament, early creedal statements, the oral tradition, uh, the literature that we now call the Apostolic Fathers arose from that. These men, and perhaps women, took those early and or oral traditions and fashioned them into theological statements that were later judged by the church to to be either orthodox or heretical. In either case, they were built on a foundation that had been laid in the past. Because of this, it is tempting, along with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, to assert that, quote, there is nothing new under the sun. All theological exploration is the result of what has come before and lays the groundwork for what will follow. But perhaps we should qualify that statement to say something like all theological education should be the result of what has come before and lays the groundwork for what will follow. Yet this theology was not done simply to lay the foundation for something future. No theology should be done simply to lay the foundation for something future, but was done primarily to address the life of the church at that time and to address relevant contemporary questions. And this is true for the medieval Western theological tradition as much as for any other era of Christian history. It is true that the patristic era gets more attention oftentimes, but it is no less true that the medieval Western theological tradition is just as rich, and as someone with a PhD in medieval theology, I might even say richer. Sorry. In theological terms, This whole process that I've been laying out about they look back and take what was before it, incorporate it into something current and to look forward and all of this, this whole process is often called the development of doctrine. Writing in the early Middle Ages, Vincent of Lorraine held that heresy was that which did not accord with the Christian scriptures and with the church's received understanding of the scriptures. So therefore, in the mid-fifth century already, we have Vincent loudly saying that all theology must agree with the scriptures, but also must agree with the received understanding of the scriptures, that is, the theologizing that has happened to the scriptures. Vincent's goal in his main work, which we, it's difficult to translate, but might be translated as something like the remembrancer, was to record the teachings that the apostolic fathers handed down to later generations, which they were then committed to keep. Heretics erred, he said, when they failed to hold to that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all people. It's kind of a famous Vincentian canon, it's called, the the things that have been held um, and believed everywhere, always, and by all people. Moreover, Vincent believes that there could be theological progress, but not, in his words, alteration of the faith. Though not every theological position has been settled, and not even in his time, those that were, such as the divinity of Christ, 
or the relations of the Trinitarian persons must be adhered to by all future generations. In other words, you could not simply discard the divinity of Jesus Christ or that the Father, um, that the Father is the Father who begets the Son from whom the Holy Spirit processes. So if something had been settled, then of course it needed to be believed. Thus, medieval theologians worked with the assumption that what they taught was also taught by the scriptures and the apostolic fathers, and that what they said was only an extension of those positions previously affirmed. The goal for medieval theologians, or at least I should say for early medieval theologians, was not to be novel or new. Sometime in the 11th century, an anon- now anonymous theologian, we, do not, we don't know who he is, uh, railed, old new law, old new dogma, newly fabricated. New, new, and newly. It's not a compliment. To further illustrate this point, let me take the example of the most well-known and influential theologian of the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas. So again, medieval theologians didn't want to be new. They didn't see novelty as a good thing. But let us look at someone like Thomas Aquinas and see perhaps how this actually played itself out. Thomas begins his Summa Theologica by arguing that there needs to be a science inspired by God to supplement philosophy and the use of human reason. If you've ever read the Summa or read enough of the Summa, for the first 83 or 86 questions, I always forget, um, Thomas basically says, look at me, I'm just using my mind here, just using natural reason alone, right? He can get to things like that God exists, that God is uh, simple but not complex, and then he hits kind of the wall, and he says, now I'm going to get the Bible out, and wait, you can see what I can do with this, right? Um, like, you could never prove the natural reason that God is a trinity of persons, but you can prove his simplicity through natural reason. So he's saying, therefore, we need something that can move us beyond philosophy and just the mere use of human reason, because God is ultimately beyond the grasp of human reason. Aquinas concludes that, it quote, it was necessary for the salvation of humankind that certain truths which exceed human reason should be made known by divine revelation. Anything made known by divine revelation, which he calls the articles of faith, are necessary for salvation. Again, if the scriptures say it, and theologians have recognized that's what the scriptures say, then you must believe it, and it becomes necessary for salvation. In other words, you, you can't deny it, or else you're a heretic and outside the church. So these articles of faith are necessary for salvation. They're revealed by God. You can't reason yourself to them. They cannot be argued to. Whereas the preambles of faith are necessary for salvation and are also revealed by God, but they can be argued to. So God's simplicity is a preamble of faith, right? You do need to believe that God is simple, else you will become a heretic, (laughs) but And that, too, in its own way, is revealed by God through nature, through human reason, and therefore you can argue to that. But again, articles of faith are different from preambles of faith. Therefore, humankind needs divine revelation in order to be saved, and this revelation provides the surest basis in in controvertible proof, sorry, I can't, can't read tonight, in controvertible proof, according to Thomas, for all theology. And that's followed then by the probable teachings of the doctors of the church. And then those truths that are discovered by philosophers using only human reason. So you can see here that Thomas is creating a hierarchy of theological 
truth, a way of thinking theologically, right? If it's in the scriptures, it's the surest basis, incontrovertible proof. Probable teachings, then, are things like that, that Justin Martyr may have said, or Irenaeus, or someone like that. And then finally, those truths at the bottom of the ladder that philosophers get to by only using human reason. What all this amounts to is a theology that is a setting forth of those positions that accord with what has come before, especially those that are spelled out in the Christian scriptures, but also the apostolic fathers. For Thomas, he writes the Summa not to be original or to expound unique views, but to set forth, quote, this sacred scripture as briefly and clearly as the matter itself may allow. Now, we could quibble with both the briefly and the clearly if you've read the Summa, but that's what he thought he was doing. For a man who apparently could dictate about four works all at the same time, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I can't do that. Again, because novelty is bad for medieval theologians, that means you can't be doing anything new. Aquinas assures his readers that, therefore, he isn't doing anything new. But a comparison of the Summa to theological texts that came before clearly demonstrates not only a new way of doing theology, the so-called scholastic method, but an explicit use of new sources, such as the philosophy of Aristotle, which had just been newly rediscovered. In many ways, it would be difficult to defend this way of doing theology as anything other than new and novel, and many medieval monastic theologians certainly decried it as new and novel, and therefore bad. So again, I'm not completely down on Thomas Aquinas, but it's interesting, in his mind he's doing nothing new, but the method itself is new, his sources are new, um, but yet he, in his mind, he's not doing anything new. But medieval monastic theologians, his contemporaries, did look at him and say, no, no, that's new and novel, and that's bad. But we need to understand that by the time of the Middle Ages, theology was still mostly thought of as biblical commentary, especially so in the monasteries. However, as the university started to develop around the year 1200, the subject of theology began to undergo a change. By the mid-12th century, the word theologia was used to refer to theology as an academic discipline. In this sense, theology was no longer just biblical commentary, but it come to mean a scientific model of understanding the faith as a tool for the education of the professional clerical class, or at least so says Bernard McGinn. In other words, it, the discipline of theology, began to take on the connotations that we associate with it today when we think of it as an academic discipline among the Christian liberal arts. Yet, in the early Middle Ages, it was not one of the liberal arts. Rather, the seven liberal arts were a preparation for the discipline of theology. Theology came to be seen as the queen of the sciences, or the queen of the arts, if you will. For much of the Middle Ages, there was general agreement as to what theology is, but differing views regarding theological method. Since at least the publication in 1957 of Jean Leclerc's The Love of Learning and the Desire for God, there are two ways that scholars of medieval theology think about the theological method or methods that prevailed in the Middle Ages, monastic and scholastic. Scholars have challenged this dichotomy because that's what scholars do, but it provides at least a heuristic tool to think about medieval theological practice. Not only do these two approaches rely on differing foundations and presuppositions, 
but they also roughly correspond to two time periods within the Middle Ages. Though the start date of the Middle Ages is up for debate, it is often recognized to begin at least by the time of the papacy of Gregory the Great, who was pope from 590 to 604. Thus, the first period extends from about the year 600 of the first decade, um, I'm sorry, from the year 600 to the first decade of the 12th century. And that's characterized by what Leclerc calls monastic theology. This type of theology was done by monks living in monasteries, and the intended audience for this theology were often other monks. Highly dependent on the apostolic fathers, monastic theology sought to provide a robust theological reflection on and articulation of the articles of Christian faith, and was not simply concerned with practical monastic affairs, such as the forms of prayer, asceticism, purity of heart, union with God, etc. Right? So it, it sought to provide a robust theological reflection, and it wasn't just about kind of the in-house issues that you would imagine monks would have in monasteries. It was a discernible theological method that flowered during the 12th century in the figure of Bernard of Clairvaux, for example. In monastic theology, the principal task of the theologian is to transmit and explain the Bible, not, for example, to reconcile the many conflicting theological perspectives that exist in, Christi in Christian history. That was done by Abelard, for example, in his work called Sick et Non, Yes and No. No, rather, the end of monastic theology was prayer and ultimately union with God. Many a theological dissertation has been written trying to reconcile conflicting theological problems. By and large, monastic theology was not interested in that at all. Monastic theology, again, was interested in union with God and prayer. And therefore, the monks who engaged in monastic theology did it for that end and for no other. And maybe not for no other, but primarily for that end. Scholastic theology, on the other hand, dominated medieval theological practice from the 13th century up to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, and has been more influential on pre-modern and modern theological method. Scholastic theology was done primarily by those in the schools, especially the emerging universities of the 13th century. These weren't the only schools, but once they began to emerge in the 12th century, scholastic theology became the primary way of doing theology in the classroom. To discover the origins of theology as a school discipline, if you will, one must trace just how, when, and where Holy Scripture came to be taught by the so-called masters, as distinguished from it being preached by bishops and archbishops, chanted by priests, and meditated, meditated upon by monks. That is, if you want to date the origins of theology as a discipline, like an academic discipline related to universities, you just need to see when the masters became those who interpreted Holy Scripture over and above prelates, priests, and monks. The scholastics' theological practice did not ignore the apostolic fathers, but they made use of not only earlier Christian literature, but of non-Christian philosophy too, as I've said, especially the newly discovered Aristotle, and this is very clear when one reads Thomas Aquinas, for example. I've never taken the time to count, but I'm sure someone has, and I would love to find out the number of times that Aquinas mentions the philosopher. That's Aristotle. Moreover, and this is important to the cleric's thesis in his book, 
on the love of learning and the desire for God, the scholastic method not only made use of Aristotle, but it was also characterized by the teaching procedure known as the questio. That is, the educational form wherein logical, syllogistic reasoning is employed, oftentimes to resolve a doubtful point. The principal task of the, theological, of the scholastic theologian is the investigation of new problems and to search for new answers to these theological problems. So notice the word new, right? They wanted new problems to solve. They were looking for new answers. The scholastic theologian did not fully ignore the apostolic fathers or the early Christian theological tradition, but he certainly did not limit himself to these sources, but sought insight from non-Christian, Hellenistic, Jewish, even Arabic philosophical traditions as well. Leclerc rightly notes that the differences between monastic and scholastic theology are evidenced in both their modes of expression and in their process of thought. The monks speak in a language borrowed from the Bible and from the Patristic Fathers, whereas the scholastic theologian uses abstract terms and even neologisms to make his point. And this point was brought home to me recently because I'm teaching a class on Bernard of Clairvaux's theology to graduate students at our Talbot School of Theology. We have a program in classical theology, so you just spend a semester reading one theologian and discussing his works. And one of the students in there says, I just cannot figure out what Bernard is doing when he's just constantly quoting the scriptures. And I said, oh, that's just because that's how he thinks. It's a language he uses. It's not always meant that you're supposed to be like, wait, that's Romans 3. I must go now look at Romans 3 and see what Bernard was doing with Romans 3. No, Bernard might not even know that he's kind of quoting or paraphrasing Romans 3 there. It's just his language. So even in 2022, Bernard's way of being a monastic theologian still causes difficulty in reading him. Uh, I read him on the plane today, his parables. Uh, for the, I haven't read them before. They're quite interesting and <laughs> And that alone would be a whole lecture just on the way he talks about it, what he talks about. Well, concerning monastic theology, Bernard of Clairvaux is illustrative. He writes this in his work on baptism. This is why I do not care for verbal jousting, but follow the apostles' teaching on avoiding disputes about words. It is only the opinions of the fathers I advance, only their words I put forward, not my own, for we are not wiser than our fathers. Scholastic theologians, on the other hand, evidence no hesitation in using non-biblical language to communicate their theological positions. A good example of this is in scholasticism's adoption of the Latin word transubstantio to describe what happens to the bread and the wine during the Eucharistic consecration. The word transubstantiatio, which we just simply leave as transubstantiation, only came into use in sacramental theology in the late 11th century. But by the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, it was the definitive way for the council fathers to define the change of the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Jesus during the Mass. Canon 1 of the Fourth Lateran Council says this, quote, There is one universal church of the faithful, outside of which there is absolutely no salvation, in which there is the same priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whose body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine, the bread being changed transubstantiated by divine power into the body and the wine into the blood so that to realize the mystery of unity we may receive of him what he has received of us 
So again, the point is, is that scholastic theologians have no problem using new words, neologisms, right? It's right there in, it's, it's new, it's something different, something new, it's not something that's been used before. But monastic theologians don't do this. For example, if you do read Bernard of Clairvaux's On Loving God, you're going to get to an interesting section where the section title is going to be called Whence the Pomegranates. Now, put a question mark behind it. Whence the pomegranates? <laughs> Bernard, whence the pomegranates? <laughs> Turns out the word apple in the Song of Solomon leads him to reflect on pomegranates because if you think of apple in the scriptures, you don't get very far. Ah, but if you think of pomegranates, you get a lot further. So apple equals pomegranate equals the Eucharist. Okay? There is no transubstantiation. We're talking about pomegranates. So that's just one example of many. Concerning process of thought, monastic theology often gathered biblical verses on any given topic, coupled with quotations from the patristic fathers, and organized them into a chain of commentary on a particular subject. And again, that's exactly what Bernard is doing in that section of the On Loving God, right? He's got a quotation from the Song of Solomon that he wants to work out, he wants to do something with it, if you will, and it mentions apples and flowers. So he turns apples to pomegranates and then talks about how that's the Eucharist, and I'm not completely sure yet what the flowers are, though they are the fruit of the tree of the resurrection. But again, I mean, this is biblical commentary in a very weird sort of way. I mean, weird if you're not used to it, and normal if you read a lot of Bernard. Scholastic theology, however, the procedure of disputatio was employed. The disputation, often framed as a discussion between a master and his disciple, used a question and answer method to access truth. It was the characteristic act, as well as the literary form assumed by scholastic theology, or at least so says Marie-Dominique Chenu, one of the uh, 20th century's greatest uh, theologians of the medieval era, and so I trust that he's right about this. Right, that, and it is true. The disputatio. I mean, Aquinas is a form of that. If you've read the Summa, um, that it's a master and a, and a disciple, and its questions being answered. I mean, it, it harkens back to the Platonic dialogue form. The question that they might be pursuing, the master and his disciple, grew spontaneously from the surface of the text. In their mind, the question had existed for a long time, even among the fathers. Even if the fathers hadn't debated the question. Right? And so therefore, this question, which was on the surface of the text, had developed a sense of its own literature of questions and answers. But in the 12th century, this spontaneous development became systematic. In other words, what had always kind of been there in their mind then became systematic, the way that they did it. Because the curiosity of faith became so widespread, and the use of dialectic gave such useful implements that the lector, right, the, the master, began to pose questions technically, even artificially, on each proposition, or at least on important points of the text. And this was the crucial step in the making of scholasticism, for as much for its basic mode of thought as for its method of arranging arguments. In other words, even if those questions had been on the surface of the text, they'd always been there, but now something in the contemporary context was making that question more worthwhile, more notable, something that needed to be pursued, it soon gave way to more artificial questions. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? What does one do with a mouse who consumes consecrated host? 
you kill it and bury it, according to Thomas Aquinas. So I didn't, didn't want to leave you hanging without the answer there. So, um, but again, like the scholastic theologians came to enjoy the disputation so much so that they lost interest in the theological answers that it was supposed to produce. They just enjoyed the disputation for disputation's sake. Monastic theologians saw this as pride, since it put the spotlight on the disputer, not on theological truth. This led, in their mind then, to the sin of curiosity, curiositas, over against the monastic theologian's simplicity and humility, virtues cultivated in the monastery. So no monastic theologian may have said, I'm simple and I'm humble, because that itself would be a statement of pride to some effect, but the monastery was meant to cultivate these virtues, and therefore theology grew out of simplicity and humility, as opposed to the curiosity that was happening in scholastic theology, especially in the universities. In the end, the new forms used in theological literature by the masters to speak only of the rational device of the questio and the construction of the summa, like the summa theologica, while ignoring their contents and purposes, have brought us far from the works of the cloisters and their theologians, who, working within the institutional spiritual framework of the monastic life, embroidered upon the word of God, the sacred page, according to their particular purposes, Moving from monastic theology to scholastic theology, we have passed into a new age. Right? So again, you can just see this break. It doesn't happen in a particular year. It doesn't happen with a particular person. But there's this clear development uh, from monastic theology into scholastic theology beginning around the year 1200 with the foundation of the universities. For the sake of time, I want to focus on only one core aspect of monastic theology that I think has a direct impact on how we think about contemporary Christian catechesis, and that is the role of the affectus, the affect. When medieval monastic theologians speak of affectus, they are referring to the faculty through which the soul desires things and enjoys them with sweetness. And that's an important way that the affectus is how the soul desires things. And desire there is not Augustinian concupiscence. Rather, it's that, it's that, um, that desire that is truly born out of God himself and enjoys them with sweetness. Sweetness is just one of those words that you encounter all over monastic theology. In the words of the 12th century Cistercian monk and theologian Albert of Riveau, a contemporary of Bernard of Clairvaux, he said, quote, Love is a certain affection of the rational soul, whereby it seeks and eagerly strives after some object to possess it and enjoy it. Having attained its object through love, says Alred, it enjoys it with a certain interior sweetness, embraces it, and preserves it. And really, I just kind of want to read that again, right? That it's an affection of the rational soul, whereby it seeks and strives after an object to possess it and enjoy it. And then once it's obtained that object through love, it enjoys it with that kind of interior sweetness, embraces it, preserves it. Elsewhere, Alred defines affect as a, quote, spontaneous, pleasant inclination of the spirit towards someone. In short, affectus designates a state, a psychological and emotional reaction to something, 
It is a spontaneous inclination. And so when you hear psychological and emotional reaction in the best senses of those words, (laughs) it can originate in the soul or the mind, and it has both a passive and an active component. For Bernard of Clairvaux, there are two parts of ourselves then, he says, understanding and effectus. The understanding that it may know and the effectus that it may will. So for Bernard, you know something, but the affect creates the desire to will, to possess something that you might know. So again, knowing who God is and having the affect to want to possess him are different things. In other words, every person is able to know and to will because they have understanding and affect, says Bernard. And though much more could be said about the affect, I think this is sufficient to allow us to move forward and apply all that I have said to contemporary Christian catechesis. Again, okay, so we have, let me just sum up real quick. So we have theological method that changes, right? But then we also have, in the monastic theological tradition, something that the scholastics don't talk about very much, which is the affect, which allows us to to be affected by something. You know, not just to know something, but to, to know, but then also to desire and have an inclination and to will that thing and to want to possess it and enjoy it. With a kind of sweetness um, that would that would be almost uh, indescribable or or perhaps uh, so mystical at times that it couldn't be described. Well, as I turn to Christian catechesis more properly, I'm going to limit my comments primarily to the Anglican Church in North America's catechism entitled "To Be a Christian: An Anglican Catechism." Let me also say that my comments are not meant to be purely critical, which now there's a bit of a foreshadowing that there's a bit of criticism coming, but rather they are intended to be constructive. I'm fully aware that there may in fact be people associated with Christchurch who worked on the catechism. <laughs> the one I know of for sure, Father Lee, is not here, so that's probably a good thing. But um, uh, yeah, this is meant to, it is, it really is meant to be constructive. In their preface to the 2020 publication of the Catechism, current ACNA Archbishop Foley Beach and former Archbishop Bob Duncan write this, quote, We envision this catechism being used for courses, shorter or longer, based on groups of questions and answers. Notice this language. The degree to which it is used directly for instruction and the amount of memorization asked of individual catechumens are left to the catechist to determine by context and circumstance. Further, they say, quote, that a catechism is ideally to be used in the context of a relationship between the catechist, and this is an interesting little parenthetical understanding of what the word catechist means, the discipleship instructor, and the catechumen, the one being instructed to foster the process of catechesis, which again they gloss as disciple-making. They conclude, the catechumen is invited by the catechist to a new identity in Christ, and into a new community to the praise of God's glory, to the practice of stewardship, and to sharing in the ministry of making disciples of all nations. Then the two archbishops conclude, quote, we pray that this book will be an effective instrument to disciple believers in the truth of the gospel so that they may serve Jesus Christ throughout the world. Then there's an introduction. The introduction to the catechism is written by the late J.I. Packer. But we are told that it is written, quote, on behalf of the Committee for Catechesis. And in this introduction, similar language to the archbishops is employed. Quote, from the Greek katecheo, instruct, 
The catechumenate was a period of one to three years instruction, and now glossed catechesis, leading to baptism at Easter. This ancient pattern of Christian disciple-making continued for some centuries before falling into disuse. Packer then continues, this catechism, a text used for instruction of Christian disciples, is designed as a resource manual for the renewal of Anglican catechetical practice. Packer frames the catechism as a missional means, this is his language again, a missional means to bring about both conversion to Christ and formation in Christ. None of this, of course, is bad, but it does seem to me that the archbishops and J.I. Packer, if I could say this, are framing the catechism as primarily a document of intellectual instruction or formation. Packer makes this obvious, I think, when he lays out the guidelines followed in drafting the catechism. Though there were only three guidelines, their language those who drafted the catechism are of the intellectual sort. Everything taught, used twice, taught. And quote, all the answers and questions should be as easy to explain. End quote. So that's what guided uh, the, the architects of the catechism. In short, to be a Christian, the document itself, is framed as a document that instructs and forms the intellect. And it is in good company, as the catechetical lectures of Cyril of Jerusalem, in 380s, who died in 386, and the catechetical discourses of Gregory of Nyssa, who died around 395, are both framed as exercises in intellectual formation. But I would suggest that this is something proper to medieval scholastic theology and its descendants. Well, not the Cyril and Gregory of Nyssa bit, obviously they predate it, but the way in which the archbishops and J.F. Packer frame the catechism, I would say, is something proper to medieval scholastic theology. And I say it's descendants because I, what I don't do in this lecture is trace out scholasticism's descendants. I mean, the worst version of the story is it led to the Enlightenment, which led to postmodernism, which led to the absence of, of truth. So, so there you go. I'm glad I don't have a doctorate in scholastic theology then, so just kidding. Okay, but the catechetical tradition, when it's at its best, is not concerned with just intellectual formation, but, and perhaps primarily, should be uh, concerned about the formation of the affect. Even when framed as mostly intellectual formation, it is true that one's actions follow one's beliefs. Lex orande, lex credendi. What we pray, what we do, leads to what we believe. But is not the end the telos of all intellectual formation, of all theological endeavor, not just knowledge of God, but union with God? See, that might be a monastic theological kind of question to ask. That the telos of something is union with God, not knowledge of God. There is a fundamental principle recognized by both philosophers and theologians that goes something like this and I'm actually going to quote Aquinas, every agent of necessity acts for an end. Again, every agent of necessity acts for an end. Thomas says that in his Summa, but he gets it from Aristotle in the physics. 
Everything that we do as humans, then, tends towards a specific end. That's the point. That's what Aquinas and Aristotle and everyone else who's ever said that believes, that we act toward a certain end. And the end of all Christian striving is union with God, or in similar language, love of God, or in similar language, beatitude with God, or in similar language, happiness with God. In the words of the late medieval English monastic theologian, this is really here for Father Jonathan, Richard Roll, quote, know you well that the end and the height of perfection lies in a true union of, of the soul of man in utter love. Again, know you well that the end and the height of perfection lies in a true union of the soul with man in utter love. In his On Consideration, Bernard of Clairvaux writes, quote, God is perhaps more worthily sought and more easily found by prayer than by discussion. Orando quam disputando makes a nice little Latin phrase. God is perhaps more worthily sought and more easily found by prayer than by discussion. Prayer, born out of one's experience, leads to love of God, creating a desire for a personal experiential relationship with God, as opposed to mastering the theological content of Trinitarian theology, for example. It is good to know that the Father beget the Son, but more important for one to have a relationship with the only begotten Son, a relationship that is deep and profound, as explained in Bernard of Clairvaux's sermons on the Song of Solomon, for example. To quote Jean Leclerc again, the great difference between the theology of the schools and that of the monasteries resides in the importance which the latter accord the experience of union with God. Now, Jean Leclerc, who's uh, no longer with us, was a Benedictine monk, and he knew medieval theology like the back of his hand. And so if he says there's a difference between the theology of the schools, scholastic theology, and the theology of the monasteries, monastic theology resides in the importance which the latter accords the experience of union with God, then I'm going to believe him. But more than that, it's also my experience. It's the kind of thing that is born out of my own affect. See, monastic theology is dependent on a lived faith that results in a savoring and relishing of divine realities. And I chose the word savoring and relishing because that's a more medieval monastic mode of thought. Thus, a monastic theologian is a liturgist. That is, one who worships God individually and corporately. So an aside, if you want to see a good defense of all of us being thought of as liturgists, you need to read David Fagerberg's um, uh, On Liturgical Asceticism. It is a, is a good starting point, or his prima theologia. See, we're all, we're all liturgists, and monastic theologians certainly are liturgists. One who worships God individually, the monk in a cell, or us at prayer alone, but certainly and importantly, corporately, together at the Eucharist, together for daily office. A monastic theologian is one who learns the terms and logic of theology so that she can move on to the worship of God. A monastic theologian obtains an objective knowledge of God so that she can prepare herself for a subjective, personal knowledge born of the affect. In the end, monastic theology 
stresses the essentially religious character that knowledge of God should retain. It should be a knowledge which unites and joins one to God, says Jean Leclerc. An experience that does not ignore the role of reason or logic, this is not an, an argument to throw out reason or logic or intellectual knowledge formation, but one that is born primarily out of one's inner self in fellowship with those theologians who have come before and in communion with the Word of God, both written and living. So let me conclude with an insight from James K.A. Smith's philosophy of liturgy, desire, and formation. Okay, I know we're recording, but I'm going to say this anyway. So, so I know Jamie, and one of the things I've always said to Jamie is, you know, when he wrote these, these works, which were really influential, I, I'm surprised at how old they are. I didn't know they were like 14 years old already. But the, the point is, <laughs> um, his, his uh, writings, I always said, Jamie, this is just borrowed capital from Anglicanism. And he would always say, yes, I know. <laughs> but now I'm realizing that it's borrowed capital from uh, monastic theology as well. You probably know this, but Smith argues that we are what we love. We are liturgical beings, homo liturgicus, he says, who do not only think, but first and foremost love through habituated practices. Because we are liturgical beings, we are going to be formed through liturgy. But then Smith asks, well, what liturgy, though? A secular cultural liturgy or a sacred Christian liturgy? For, he writes, quote, the liturgy is a hearts and minds strategy, a pedagogy that trains us as disciples precisely by putting our bodies through a regimen of repeated practices that get hold of our heart and aim our love toward the kingdom of God. Right? So that's, that's David Fagerberg's liturgist language as well. Right? That, that liturgy is not about our head. It's about our heart. It's about our body, not just our minds. And so because we're going to be trained by something, formed by something, we have to make a decision what we'll be formed by. Again, some sort of a secular cultural liturgy or a sacred and Christian one. And so because these things are true, we involve ourselves in Christian community precisely because we are going to be formed liturgically. And we want that formation to be done in us by a Christian liturgy, not a cultural liturgy of materialism, for example. The same could be said of our catechetical formation. We are going to be formed in and by catechesis. But what formation? Mind or affect? The answer, thankfully, can be both. Good catechesis forms both mind and the affect. The best kind of catechesis, I think, is a monastic catechesis ad verbo et exemplo, by word and example. That is, that as the catechist him or herself is formed by the catechetical material, they're not just formed intellectually, but they're formed in their affect and that leads to them not just teaching the words of the catechism, which is, again, how the archbishops and J.I. Packer primarily framed it, but even serving as exemplars of that truth. But the problem is, is that catechists has to be trained how to do catechesis in this way. 
or else it will simply be intellectual formation. I am not against intellectual formation. Obviously, I teach at a university. But, but, but intellectual formation that merely ends at intellectual formation is a deficient intellectual formation. All intellectual formation is for the purpose of action, activity, the doing of something. It may have been fine for Rene Descartes to lock himself in his room, take everything away and reduce himself to a thinking thing, which, by the way, I'm glad he did it so I don't have to. doesn't sound very fun at all. But as a thinking thing, he rebuilds on that truth, coming very quickly to the fact that there are things that he can't understand, therefore there must be a God. He comes very quickly even back to a, a theism. But again, we're not just thinking things. Right again, in that language of Jamie Smith, that we are embodied people. We are what we love. So again, to do catechetical instruction monastically would not reject the intellectual formation, but would only see that as a kind of preamble to the larger picture of forming the catechumens in mind and affect by word and example. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That was tremendous and, and slightly provocative for our lifetime catechism. <laughs> um, we do have a few Great, yeah, okay, so let me tr try to repeat this for the sake, because Alex asked me to. So, uh, question being something about, like, kind of my understanding of catechesis and what's the relationship of, like, kind of that period of formal preparation for, let's say, confirmation, um, and then uh, a sense that I'm that you're thinking I might have that it's something bigger than that. Yeah, so you notice I didn't define uh, catechesis in the paper, um, mostly because um, I'm no expert to, to do that, really, and I don't, I'm, I'm even wondering if there is a definition. Um, so I, I think what you're picking up is on, um, is on something that, um, that I think probably is implicit in my own thinking, uh, which is this. So it, in, in different churches do different things. Um, but uh, at Anglican Church of the Epiphany, um, and we do this because I can defend it theologically and think it's best practices, um, you know, a, ch a child is born. I encourage the parents to baptize uh, the child quickly so that the child can have access to the Eucharist. So we, we do pedo communion. So we commune children um, at Epiphany. Um, so our youngest uh, communicant right now is just over two months old, uh, for example. Um, so we, we commune. Um, infants and, and everyone prior to confirmation, of course, for, in my mind, for particular ends. One is, is for, the, for the grace that is received by way of the sacraments, uh, which is what a sacrament is, conveys the grace. Um, but also, so in, in that grace will do its work in the interior life of that, of that person to bring them to a place of expressing their mature faith through, the, through confirmation when the time comes. Right? We don't want to reduce confirmation just like Okay, culturally, how old are you now? Yep, that's it. Let's do it. You know what I mean? Um, so to, to try to reduce that kind of cultural thing, we, we see it as a culmination of a faith process that began at baptism, of course, and nurtured through the sacrament. The other thing, and I think this is a more implicit thing, probably what I just said is not scandalous or, or debatable in some ways at all, but the, the other thing would be something like 
I'm going to just agree with Vatican II and say the, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. And so Jesus condescends at every Eucharist to make himself available to us in the bread and the wine. The king of the universe condescends. I mean, I just flew from California to be with you tonight and think about the sacrifices I made to be here, right? It was warmer back home, actually. And so, but, you know, Jesus, he condescends to meet us on the altar to make himself available to us in the bread and the wine. I mean, that, that is mystical, right? That's, that's, that's communing with the person of God. And so I want people to have that experience the way of the Eucharist, because that's God's, like the sacramental economy is God's way of saying, be in communion with me. It's not the only way, right? I agree with Bernard of Clairvaux. You could have some sort of fourth degree of love experience that's kind of mystical and all those kind. I'm not the only one, Teresa of Avila, pick your mystic, right? I, I believe that can happen, you know, but, but mostly, and this is the crazy way we think about it, mostly the way we have relationship with God is, is through the Eucharist, but that, that cheapens, I mean, that sounds like such cheap language. I mean, oh my goodness, like Jesus showed up again to make himself available to us, right? So they're already having this affective experience, or it should become affective, right? If, if, a, if a 12-year-old comes to me as a, as a catechumen and says, you know, Father Greg, what happens, you know, at the Eucharist? Well, let me tell you what happens at the Eucharist. The canon of the Mass comes down to us from, you know, and then I just kind of give a boring, dry answer to a question that might be more driven by, no, I mean, like, I, I kneel there, and I have, like, fuzzy, warm feelings, and I don't know what that is. I want you to tell me about what that is, you know? So, so I think, for me, catechesis is, is lifelong, um, which is different from the catechetical process to prepare someone for confirmation. But the reason why it's lifelong is because, you know, the catechism is like, you, you can never know everything there is to know about the faith to begin with, and that's because God himself is ultimately unknowable but also because part of catechesis is, is the affective training that I undergo through, uh, you know, ascetical theology, the ascetical disciplines, through the Eucharist, through suffering, through trials, you know, all, all the things that make up the entire, I was going to say spiritual life, but I think it just means life, um, you know. Um, so, so you're right. I mean, I think I'm willing to say, oh, no, there's a, like, you know, this, this, this season, but I wouldn't even want to say this season of catechetical preparation for the catechumenate, right, to prepare people for confirmation. I still want to push back on that being an intellectual formation thing. You know, the kind of like memorize, you know, the, it used to be you'd memorize good, good, good Roman Catholics back in the day, memorize like the entire Baltimore catechism. Have you ever just seen the book, the Baltimore? That is no, that's an impressive feat. Like those nuns were you know, hitting knuckles like crazy to make those kids memorize that catechism, I'm sure. So we, I think that my point is, like, I just don't want us to reduce even that to intellectual formation. That, that seems to me just to be a scholastic project that you get interested more in the answers. Not, I mean, now we're all thinking about the unruly 12-year-olds we're trying to catechize or something like that. Like, well, they, they don't really care about, you know, big theological words, Father Greg. And I'm like, well, but they should, and we can help them there, but also we need to help them to process the experience they have and to help them realize that, again, every time that they approach the altar, not just the altar, but in particular, uh, the Eucharist, that something there is going on. So, yeah. So the shortest answer is just like, yes, lifelong, 
perfectly fine with the season, but I would nest that season of catechetical preparation in the larger overall catechetical journey uh, of our lives. Paul. Yeah, the problem with question and answer, oh, so, so what's the, um, like, the, so, so the question about the question and answer format, is that kind of a good or a bad thing? Or, uh, yeah, well, it, I mean, part of that is like, what do we think the answer is doing? Like providing the answer or providing the start of an answer, right? Um, so, so one thing that like an inexperienced reader, Thomas Aquinas, which would be most of my students who are at Biola, who are only reading him for the first time in the Tory Honors College, you know, it, you know, it's it's when when you tell them that Thomas even made up the object, objections, they're like, oh, oh, really? Like, oh yeah, that's just like Thomas like coming up with you know three eight objections so that he can reply to them later, you know, below the I answer, right? And on the other hand, part um, that like from start to finish, this is this is Aquinas trying to provide answers, right? That's that's fine in as much as things are answerable. I think the issue becomes is like. Theologically speaking, I'm just not sure if everything is answerable. Now, there is an answer. What is the relationship of the Father and the Son? Right? Eternally begotten. I have no problem saying, yes, I confess that to be true. But that is not the end of the relationship between the Father and the Son. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to bother asking the Father or the Son when I get there what their relationship is because I won't be able to understand it. So, the point is, is like the, the, the strengths of the question and answer is, is you can train people to have the beginnings of, a, of an answer or, I mean, maybe even apologetically be able to defend their faith to some extent. The hazard is, is when someone masters the catechism and that's, that's it. That's it. So what happens to me a lot being next to a university is students come, they might be coming for a while, and then they can I meet with you, Father Greg? And I say, yeah, I get some office hours, you know, through the Biola uh, system. Um, you know, that, that helps me to keep my meeting times a little more manageable when students meet me and schedule office hours. And, you know, nine times out of 10, their question is something that they want more of like an intellectual answer to. And nine times, eight times out of those nine <laughs> times, I say, I think you just need to keep coming to the Eucharist for a while. Like you've only been a few times and you're asking questions. That's great. That's good. But I think you just need to keep coming and experience the liturgy. Um, your questions aren't unimportant. And it's not that they don't have answers, but you should keep coming to the, to the liturgy for a bit. And then maybe we'll talk further about some of your, we'll see if you even have the same questions in a month or two, right? And I, and I think that's just to say, like, experience it. And then we can talk about whether or not you have the same kind of intellectual questions. Their questions are intellectual. And I don't mean like, why do people cross themselves at this point in the service or something like that? I'm happy to answer those. But it's like, you know, what's the Anglican view on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Is it Calvinistic or is it, you know, and I'm like, I don't know what you mean by any of it. Like, because Calvin, it's debatable what Calvin actually meant by the presence in the Eucharist. You know what I mean? So like, so instead of just like, you know, it's, it, yes, I get paid to do this. Let's have a talk. Yay, this is fun. It's good. I enjoy it. I'm a professor. But at the same time, when it's someone who's coming to my church, I say, like, keep coming for a while, and let's see if you have the same questions or how they might change in, in a couple months. And again, it's not because I don't want to answer their questions. It's just because I'm trying to also show them that the affect is an important part of that, the experiential side of it. Um, so 
So I don't know if that helps. I mean, there, you know, everything can be used and abused. It's not, it's, it's not like monastic theologians got it right. I mean, <laughs> Bernard of Clairvaux can be terribly entertaining at times, not in the best way. You know what I mean? Like his, his flights of fancy are just like, put your feet up on the ottoman, light a fire, pour some scotch, and just enjoy, you know? Like, they really can just be kind of like, I have no idea what Bernard's up to right here. I, don't, I mean, if he knew, that's awesome. But um, so again, this is not a pit one against the other. It's just primarily we are an inheritors of a scholastic theological method that prioritizes uh, intellectual formation. I'm just, you know, so, so this beginnings, this research project and new book are trying to make an argument for recovering a medieval monastic theological method. Um, and th not to the exclusion of scholastic things, but but I have a I have a preference. I lean a certain way. So yeah. Yep. They just just pray it. I mean, that's, I'm not trying to be cheeky. That is the answer. They just prayed it. It showed up. I mean, <laughs> if if it was the Cluniacs at the height of their kind of time in the 11th century, I mean, they were praying the entire Psalter one and a half times a day. That's 225 psalms a day. I mean, Psalm 88 could have come around twice, right? You could have been frustrated by it twice in the same day. Um, but they they prayed it not domesticated it, not, um, I mean, that, that example, I, I don't know if there's a medieval commentator on it whose work has come down to us, uh, a monastic one. Um, but, but what we do know is the monastics prayed the Psalms, and they prayed all of the Psalms. Um, I am not a monk, um, so I, I don't I don't live in that routine in the same way they do of you know what do you do when you come to these psalms like eighty eight you know and you know praying those um, I've read monks talk about you know like an imprecatory psalm or something what does it mean to to pray that um, and you know there's some there's some ways that I've I think they answer that in kind of an interesting justifiable way again it's their experience so it's I'm just looking in on that but. Um, but yeah, I think that they would pray it, and I think a scholastic theologian would want to dissect it and get to the bottom of it and have an answer as to why. You know, one of the things I, you know, I'm, I'm a convert to Anglicanism, if you will, um, you know, almost 17 years ago. Um, I mean, one of the things I liked about Anglicanism was the sense of mystery that it retained. And I mean, mystery can be an overall word. Um, I realize that, uh, like, just like contemplative can be or something like that. But I mean, like, just that sense of Christ is present in the bread of the wine, how, you know, I mean, it's like you're not going to go to our, the answer is supposedly in the prayer book. I just can't find anyone to show me where the answer is at in the prayer book. Um, I mean, I know what we say. Thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food. Of the, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I know all that, but like, 
it's it, you can't you can't do the kind of twelfth you know the fourth ladder in council oh transubstantiation that's that's how he's there we just don't have that it retains enough of a mystery that it actually allows for a spectrum of views um, but also allows us to maybe live into the experience of communing on the body and blood of Christ as opposed to intellectually justifying and domesticating the experience. I am not a relativist when it comes to truth at all. Um, but I think, you know, when something needs to be defined and stated, do it. And if not, eh, don't do it, you know. Um, and if something can't be, I just don't know if it if it should keep trying to be. Uh, there was a day when... Um, I was just talking to someone the other day about how underslept I went for years as a grad student. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a young it's a young person's game um, uh, <laughs> to to get a doctorate and stuff. And I mean, I went to twelve years of school after high school. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I was woefully underslept for many many years. I don't know how I did it, but I I do recall. You know, it would be one or one thirty in the morning, and I was talking to. Um, a guy who just recently finished his, his doctorate, and he, he, he's probably a little older than me, and I'm 50. Um, and so he's kind of coming back around at a later time in his life, but, uh, but he went to Dallas Theological Seminary as well. And so I was telling him, you know, I was like, I remember sitting in my apartment in Mesquite when I was at Dallas, I mean, barely scratching, you know, post-college work. I had a lot of years to go yet, in other words. And remember just sitting there, in, you know, late, late at night, early morning, thinking, oh, I just want to go to bed. I'm so tired, but I have so many. I still have like 40 pages of this reading. And I took it all very seriously, so I wanted to finish it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember just would, I'd be sitting there and I would be thinking, oh, I just can't wait to get my doctorate in, 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 as a theologian and say new things. <laughs> what I should have just been doing was reading because now I don't want to say anything new, right? I mean, like if, it, um, but that that sense that like, you know, this education, I'm going to go out, I'm going to say new things, and, and you know, and now I'm, I don't want to say new things at all. Um, I, I think we should be, uh, like Psalm 88, I mean, you know, it, I'd probably say, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if you do the daily office, but, but pray it. I mean, if you do a monthly Psalter, you're going to get it, you know, once a month. If you do a 60-day Psalter, you're only going to get it once every two months. But, you know, add it in there, pray it, pray it every day for a season, and, and see, if, if your own reflection and thinking about Psalm 88 changes, um, and if not, then maybe at some point months down the road, think about picking up a commentary and see if someone can give you some insight or something like that. So, Yeah. Oh man, that's a that's a great question. What changes would I make to the Anglican Catechism? <laughs> okay, who worked on it in the room? Alex, were you involved? No. Okay. And, and Jonathan, you were involved in the prayer book, I know, but but not the Catechism, really. Okay. And Father Lee's not here, so um, <laughs> this is awesome. Um, and and Alex can clip 
the recording at any point he wants. Yeah, so, oh, something happened there. It went, went, went quiet for a while. Um, that's a great question. M- my main qualm with the to be a Christian catechism is it is long. I mean, it's 320-some questions maybe or something like that. I mean, it's long like Thomas Aquinas is long with, with maybe not knowing it's as long as it is. So even just, there's, there's just a pragmatic issue of how to deploy it, right, based on its length. Um, but that, take that back, right? So it, it, it might be like, oh, maybe there's just too much here, right? Um, like maybe some of this could be left. I mean, I think the 1604 or 1611 catechism that ended up being in the 1662 prayer book is like 11 questions or something like that. It's pretty short and simple. Ben Jeffries. Uh, Neshota House alum just kind of republished an edition of it through Neshota House Press. That's <clears throat> actually what I used for my catechumens uh, late last year because, well, I also have all these Biola students that are getting 60 units of Bible and theology. So, you know, I'm gonna, I want to focus on the Anglican side of things, not not some of the bigger theological questions that they've already dealt with. Um, I w- yeah, I think I would probably add, I mean, not just a preface in the sense of like, um, but let's say, yeah, I mean, a preface, but it would to try to situate it in the, the, over, the overarching life of the Christian um, whose telos is to be united with God um, that basically says, you know, th- these are not the only questions, nor are they the only answers, or maybe another way to say it would be like, they're not the, necessarily the full answers that could be provided to any of these questions, um, that it presumes that the catechumen is... Uh, in a worshiping community, um, not, I mean, like actively worshiping. Um, I don't know how many years it'll be before Acna kind of gets the, I was baptized here, and now I'm, you know, now I'm back to get confirmed uh, vibe going on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, uh, I don't even know what to call those occasional Christians. Maybe that's just a good word for it. Um, but, um, you know, in other words, like, you know, as a priest, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to put you up for confirmation if you're not part of this worshiping community, but not, not for, you know, I wouldn't write it into my bylaws. It's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a legal or canonical thing at that point. It's a literal, like, no, you, you are not partaking of the mysteries uh, themselves. And so we're not going to kind of instruct you in the mysteries, if you will. So I think just things like that, I would try to add in there and maybe just reframe some of the language is that like the telos isn't, just intellectual formation or instruction. I mean, you know, the, the language of disciple making is at, at best imprecise. I mean, at, at, at worst, it's just downright unhelpful. Um, it might be better to try to say a little more clearly what we mean by that. And, and I mean, and I think that, that how, how you would say that, I guess it probably depends on your sacramental theology, your... Um, your theology proper, just in the way that you think we can be in relationship with God. Um, so maybe the disciple making was the best Matthean neutral ground they could come up with, you know, Matthew 28, but but I'd probably say something stronger about what the telos of the Christian life is and how the intellectual formation of, you know, provided by the catechism is just a small piece of a bigger, of a bigger thing. And most of that also probably just emphasize maybe a little pseudo-Dionysian ineffable, you know, like that which is ineffable. As much as it's here, there's a lot that's not here because there's an ineffable element, not just to God himself, but to the to the theological project, uh, and that there's an effective side to the theological project. 
right? And so just uh, one more thing is like, to that is just say, and by affect, I don't think you're mistaking me to be like, if you can conjure me to raise my hands in worship, that must be affect, right? Um, I am constitutionally not built to raise my hands uh, in worship, but I will raise them as a sacred action at the Eucharist, you know what I mean? Um, so it's, it's not, it's, it, it is a bit subjective, but it, we don't mean by that, we don't mean the subjectivism that's kind of the, the goal of, of uh you know, kind of, kind of hardcore charismatic or Pentecostalism, or, or mostly kind of what evangelicalism has tended towards these days. Yeah. Thank you so much. For yeah, absolutely.